0: I did a thing. What did you do? I downloaded TikTok.
1: Oh my god, I know. (laughs) Okay, y'all, listen. I am younger than Brittany. I think that needs to be known uh, for this story. And I'll admit it, I was into Vines and stuff when that was a thing. Never enough to download Vine or to make one, but like those 20-minute long Vine compilations you can find on YouTube, loved it. So into it. TikTok, I don't understand. And it makes me feel like old and out of touch. And I don't get it because I I don't understand. I don't really (laughs) want to see people be like... I don't know, doing sing and dance and things with their camera, going like, wah, wah. "Y'all can't see what I'm doing because this is audio, <laughs> so it doesn't really transfer." But I, I just, I don't get TikTok, and I think that statement alone just made me sprout like four more gray hairs.
0: The thing is, you haven't ever downloaded it, so you're right, you don't know it, and I didn't either. And you know what? It's quarantine. I'm bored of shit, so I downloaded it, and I have no regrets. I mean, I, admittedly. It's disgustingly addicting, and I've been on it way more hours than I'm going to truly admit, but it's been a lot. And you know what? I'm I'm not the old person on there, okay? Let's just put that out there. It's not just... I'm not sitting there watching videos like 15-year-olds, okay? I'm not. It's people my age, (laughs) and in their 20s, and your age.
1: I mean, and I get it. We all do things we'll regret later during quarantine. Um, (laughs) I, for example have watched all of the live-action Disney movies. I even was getting prepared to watch the live-action Cinderella, and that's when I was like, Tyler, we need to talk. <laughs> the others, Lion King, totally understand. Aladdin, understand a little less. Beauty and the Beast, you don't even like the animated one. But sure, let's sit and watch two and a half hours of it. <laughs> Cinderella, though, I was like, I, can't, I, I need to go to bed. Because, again, y'all understand... I've talked about it countless times that I don't like movies. I don't like sitting there and just watching it. I watched all three of those in one sitting. I'm losing my goddamn mind.
0: <laughs> you are losing your mind. Well, I hope you guys are keeping your minds as together as you can and hopefully this podcast every week, you know, we can get your mind off quarantine and get it on murder. Yeah. <laughs> but like don't I... don't don't relate those two, please. <laughs>
1: you know, I actually did have the thought. I was wondering with how many people are like successfully doing social distancing, I wonder what the effects on like the violent crime rate are.
0: I think domestic violence is going up quite a bit.
1: I that yeah
0: which is I mean very unfortunate but I have seen multiple articles come across that that is becoming more of a concern so it's like yeah yeah, the crimes outside of the city may not be happening like this isn't the purge yet but crimes inside the home I think are more frequent now
1: yeah well and I can only imagine you know being quarantined with an abuser just Listeners, um, if you or anyone you know are in that situation, there are a ton of resources that are out there that you can still use that are there to help you in any situation.
0: Yeah. Well, hello everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany,
1: and I'm Tyler,
0: and we're just gonna start this one heavy because it's gonna be really intense. Because it's episode 101, and it's
1: 101.
0: We're just gonna up the intensity of everything always like like we do.
1: Is this our season 2? It's 101 through 200 season <laughs> 2.
0: <laughs> Welcome to season 2 of Blood and Wine when things get bloodier and we get drunker.
1: Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> We're switching to straight hard liquor because of the quarantine.
0: <laughs> but like everyone's everyone's drinking every day, right? It's not just me, is it? <laughs>
1: I mean, I I wouldn't say every day Uh, for me personally, because as we'll discuss later a little bit when we get into our wine, a fucked up.
0: What do you mean?
1: Um, You know, I social distanced a little too hard, and my wine order isn't coming in, so I don't have wine. I was just trying to be safe and be smart, and I was like, oh, I can order wine delivery. That'll be great. And so did everyone else in Austin have that same thought and so I don't have any wine but don't worry I am drinking in this episode. D- don't worry there.
0: <laughs> oh my god, that sucks, but I I get it. I mean, that's that's what you have to do right now. Um honestly, ever since they well not ever since i've just tried to stay at home no matter what but once they were like actually yeah you probably should wear a mask when you go out into public i'm like that's it i'm I'm staying home forever
1: like I'm, I'm good
0: so and even when i did a to-go order the other night i was like oh my god i have to get out of the car to go to go pick this up which i know sounds weird but it just i'm not interacting with many people <laughs> So, anyway, there's a lot going on right now, but that's not what we're going to focus on. I'm very sorry you don't have wine. Glad you at least have something. I have wine. Yes. I'm excited about it. But before we do that, just want to remind you guys about Patreon. If you are bored of shit, like we all are, and you're wanting some more episodes, we've got more of those over on Patreon. So, for as little as $1, you can get access to all of those. So, go check it out. We've got, like, 45 more episodes over there or thereabouts, maybe 44. I don't know. You should definitely check it out, though.
1: And while you're checking that out, also make sure that uh, you have subscribed to us on whatever platform you listen to us on, if it's Apple Music, if it's Spotify, if it's one of the web-based podcasts, things. I don't know. However you're listening to us right this moment, uh, whatever platform that is, make sure that you hit that subscribe button so you can be notified every time we release a new episode every week.
0: Yes. Well, speaking of new episodes, this is one of them. Yay! Yay! So last week, Ty and I did an episode together. So this week, I... Volunteered to pick the topic, and it's because I had one in mind. and Tyler was like, Sure.
1: Yep, she hunger games to volunteer to strip you.
0: I did. And this week's topic is machete murders. Because when I said we're leveling up, I wasn't kidding. Yeah, fair. (laughs) JK, not really. So machete murders happen way more often than I would ever like to believe. But hey, it's a thing, apparently. Apparently people have machetes and I have never seen one in real life. And I would like to keep it that way. I mean, I
1: have, but in the like using them for camping shit way, not in the hacking people to death kind of way.
0: I mean, really, really hope you have never seen it the latter, because I would have a lot of other questions. I've only seen like a
1: couple people murdered by machete, but it was like, whatever.
0: I was just like when I was running in the park, because runners always find the bodies.
1: God, it's so true. And also, I don't
0: run. What is running? That's hilarious. So... Before we get into our gruesome machete murders, Tyler, I'm really curious what you're going to be drinking. So what are what's your beverage of choice?
1: So, yes, I don't have wine, but if you listened to last week's episode, you know that I was drinking my favorite drink, Strongbow, and I have two cans left, so it's Strongbow Part Two, and that's where we are. I'm not going to go into what it is again. It's cider. It's... <laughs> English people are like, oh my god, it's garbage cider. But um, I I love it. It's it's my everything. So, yep, I have two cans of Strongbow left, and then I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow.
0: Hopefully your wine order comes eventually.
1: Uh, fingers crossed. But I guess...
0: Um, I'm sorry. Are you supposed to drink it yet?
1: I'm sorry. It was overflowing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, Strongbow's awesome. Always a good go-to. So...
1: It is, but since you are actually drinking wine in this episode of Blood and Wine, uh, why, why don't you take the reins and tell me uh, what you're drinking today?
0: So I am having the 2015 Tormoresca um, nepricia Red Blend from Italy, and. I, I hope I'm saying Nipricchia correctly, but it's it's a very interesting Italian wine that I found at Total Wine. It was probably around $12. Honestly, not sure I did the bad thing where I didn't write it down. But this one is called Nipricchia because of the three varietals that it's made from. So it's 50% Negro Mario. 35% Cabernet Sauvignon and 15% Primitivo. So it's the first two letters of all of those. N-E, oh. P-R-I, C-A. They have it in a different order, but whatever. It's from like, if you're looking at Italy as a boot, it's the heel. It's like the stiletto of the boot, you know? Okay. The part you used to crush a man, it's that part. Mm -hmm. This wine is ruby red in color with aromas of berries and a light spicy licorice. It's a nice blend with flavors of dark fruit, chocolate, hints of licorice, and the balanced acidity. So it sounds like a pretty straightforward red blend, but with a little bit more spiciness, which I'm really into into that. And I'm very curious what this wine's going to taste like. I
1: will say I hate the flavor of, like, licorice and anise, like, all of that, except in wine. Like, when wine has notes of anise or licorice or things like that, it's so good.
0: It is, but I'm never gonna sit down and eat, like, some candy licorice.
1: It's why uh, Norway would never accept me fully, because I I can't do licorice. And their favorite candy is salted black licorice.
0: Did you at least try it?
1: Oh, yeah. It's like uh, the Lakerol or whatever brand and it's disgusting. It's like not sweet, it's salty, obviously. Not not a fan. Also, if you buy a uh, cactus liqueur in uh Norway, it's licorice. It says cactus. It's licorice.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to open my wine now. I have 100% moved away from my um winged like, you know, push them down corkscrew because mm, yeah. I have pinched myself so many times on that bitch that I I can't anymore. It's like a freaking I like blood blisters kind of pinching where it's like such Ooh. a small piece really tight. Do that a few times and you will not want to use that kind of opener anymore. Fair. So, I'm using the key one again and I'm getting better at it.
1: Y- you are. Yeah, this is very successful.
0: Yay!
1: Boom.
0: Um, this one's fantastic. I'm not the biggest fan of electric wine openers. I don't know why. For some reason, I prefer to, like, do it myself. I don't know what's I wrong with like me.
1: <laughs> the wine just tastes better when you when you got to work for it a little
0: bit. That smells like red fruit. Like, wow, red fruit. I'm not getting any of the spicy, really. It definitely needs to breathe. And I left it in the fridge a little bit too long. I'll admit it. I messed up. It happens.
1: Mm. Yeah, but... Wine is wine.
0: Wine is wine, and I'm happy to have it. So with that, do we just want to cheers and chug? Just kidding, don't chug. You could, though. I mean,
1: I don't want to. (laughs) That's
0: right. You only have two. You need to conserve.
1: Yes, I think absolutely. Cheers. Cheers. Pretty sure mine made no noise, but (laughs) that's fine.
0: Okay, this wine does not taste like it smells. It's one of those. It's smooth. It doesn't have... Okay, so... The The way it smells makes you think it's going to have like punch you in the face tannins. It doesn't. It's a pretty smooth wine. It's a little bit fruitier. Like it's fruitier tasting than it smells. It smells like cherries taste more like plums. Okay. Where they're sweeter, you know. I'm getting a little bit of those spices at the back of my mouth. This is not a typical Italian wine, I wouldn't say. This is something very different. And I think it's that one grape, which one was it? The one I've never had, the Negro Amaro Amaro. Negro Amaro. It's very interesting. This is is good. I'm going to have to let it breathe a little bit more. And like I said, it's a little bit too cold. And when you do that, it's not a big deal. You just need to let your wine sit out and let it get more to a room temperature almost, because Mm -hmm. the cold will disguise the flavors in a red wine. So I think that's what's happening a little bit right now.
1: It really does. I wonder if honestly, if you had a red wine that you did not like the flavor of, but wanted to drink the bottle for some reason, and I guess didn't want to make mulled wine. There's a lot of ifs We're in this Or sangria. Scenario. Honestly, if you have shitty red wine, there's so many better options. But I guess technically you could over-chill it, but... Yeah? And it tastes like nothing, but I don't think that's a good idea.
0: I don't think that's a good idea either, but this one is starting to open up a little bit more. I'm getting tiny hints of that licorice. It's not as strong as I thought it would be.
1: Ooh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go get myself a glass and pretend I'm drinking like draft strongbow. Do it. Let me just decant my cider. These cups are not 16 ounces is what I just learned. A little bit of reserve there. Mm, You know, it is better.
0: Does it really taste better out of the can? Like, even just... Out of the
1: glass than the can.
0: Sorry, I meant out of the can, like, once you have taken it out of the can. Oh. (laughs) But I I see the confusion, because technically, (laughs) you would say the exact same thing.
1: Honestly, if the glass was chilled, it'd probably be even better. But yeah, and you get to see its nice, uh, nice deep golden color.
0: It looks like you're drinking a beer, which is very unsettling to me.
1: Because I do not drink beer.
0: (laughs) You do not drink beer. All right. Well, we have our drinks and we have our topic. So, Tyler, why don't you jump into your case?
1: So, I went in what I think was a pretty obvious route. You said machete murders. And I was like, well, then I'm going to do the machete murderer himself, Juan Corona.
0: There you go. You're like, top Google search result. Thank you. No, just kidding. <laughs> I mean,
1: I yes, I literally typed in machete murders, and it was like, "Did you mean the machete murderer?" And I was like, "What? what yes, I did."
0: <laughs> now that you mention it, Google, I think I did. <laughs> you know what?
1: Yes. So Juan Corona, the machete murderer. The sources I used: Wikipedia. I used an article from the New York Times by David Strout, Murderpedia, which had a lot of resources, and then an article from an encyclopedia of modern serial killers by Michael Newton.
0: Okay, Michael Newton, writing an encyclopedia.
1: I know, I was like, oh
0: okay he's like and on today's episode of my encyclopedia i don't know he also has a radio station
1: <laughs> i was like uh encyclopedias aren't generally episodic but
0: okay okay they're vol- volumptuous just kidding voluminous <laughs> they have volumes there you go.
1: <laughs> that is, yes those that that
0: is correct and if they're Not, really I big remember. they're also voluptuous what is that <laughs> word why can't i say it
1: voluminous
0: No, I don't know. Voluptuous? Yeah, that's the one.
1: (laughs) They're curvy. Anywho, so Juan Corona. He was born in Altlan, uh, Jalisco, Mexico, and 90% sure I went Norwegian with that, and I don't know how to pronounce the city name, is what I just realized.
0: Yeah, I mean, don't look at me. I always say I mean, everything it's, wrong.
1: It's probably not Altan, but uh, that's
0: how it's spelled, and that's
1: what I'm going with. So it's definitely in, not in, though. In, a, in Jalisco, he was born in Jalisco in Me- in Mexico on February seventh of nineteen thirty four. In nineteen fifty, when he was like sixteen, that was when he first entered the U.S. and he crossed the border in California. And he then worked in the Imperial Valley in a lot of the farms. He worked with a lot of different migrant workers picking carrots and melons. And uh, and he did that for about three months. And then he moved north to the Sacramento Valley in northern Central-ish California. Also... His half-brother, Natividad Corona, he had immigrated to California like six years earlier in 1944, um, and he worked and he wound up settling in Marysville, which was across the river from Yuba City, and these are all in the same kind of central northern California area. So, in May of 1953, Juan Corona moved to the Marysville, Yuba City area because Natividad was like, oh, you know, you can find a lot of work here. I know people here. I've lived here for a while, so come along. And so Juan was like, okay, cool. He moved there and he was really settling down and kind of putting down roots. He married his first wife, Gabriela Hermosillo, in October of 53 in Reno. And then six years later in... 1959, he married his second wife, Gloria Moreno, and with her, they had four daughters, so they're just being this family, building yeah. their life. But probably one of the biggest and most significant things to happen to him in earlier life was in December of 1955, there was a massive flood that occurred on the Yuba and Feather Rivers, and it was like one of the most destructive floods in history in Northern California. Wow! The water broke through the levees, it flooded over 100,000 acres, and it killed 74 people. The authorities, say they compelled him, so I don't really know if they forced him, if they are just forcing everyone. But regardless, at behest of the authorities, he aided in digging victims out of the mud for weeks.
0: Oh my god.
1: And that just mentally broke him.
0: Understandably.
1: Yeah. And he'd already been suffering. He had some mental illness that he was working through. But this just turned everything on its head and just triggered everything. So he began like very outwardly suffering an episode of schizophrenia and in January of 1956, so pretty much just a couple weeks after the flood, as he was digging people's bodies out of the mud... His brother had him committed to a state hospital because he was was a danger to himself. Basically, the trauma of all this broke him
0: mentally. I honestly couldn't see how it wouldn't. How something like that, if you're not... Because it doesn't sound like he volunteered to do it. And even if you do, that still creates so much trauma. So being... And and especially with like a natural disaster, something that just happens. And just being exposed to that day in and day out and searching. Like, that has to be horrible. Like, I feel for the people who are in those positions after any type of disaster. The recovery effort. That's traumatizing.
1: I don't understand how you go through anything like that without some serious PTSD. Right. And I, I don't think most people do.
0: Agreed. Oh, totally.
1: So, Juan was committed to state hospital, and because it was the early 50s, or I guess it was the mid-50s at this point, he then received 23 shock treatments which was how they were like,
0: we're going to cure
1: you. And if you've ever seen video or footage of the shock trait, it's horrifying. It is absolutely horrifying.
0: horrifying. I cannot imagine how they thought that that was doing something good. Uh, No. I don't get it. That's one of the past horrific medical things that was done in history. I will never understand how so many people were behind that thinking that that was legit. That and the lobotomy. Mm -hmm. I'm like, really? Yeah. Like, stirring someone's brain with an ice pick looking thing, that's not, that's not fixing anything. You're just making them a zombie.
1: Pretty much. The kind of medicine that went on back then, not all the time, but a lot of times, again, stuff like electroshock, lobotomy, it's absolutely horrifying. But after his 23 shock treatments, he was pronounced to be recovered, and three months after admitting him, he was released. Uh, Upon his release, he was deported to Mexico. In 1962, so six years later or so, he returned to the U.S. This time he did have a green card, and at this time he had stopped drinking. Aside from his... Occasional schizophrenic episodes and an occasional violent temper, he was regarded as a hard worker, just a member of the community, normal guy. And that same year that he moved to California, he became a licensed labor contractor. So he was the one who was in charge of hiring workers who were going to work on the different fruit farms and ranches in the area. Well, one of his big things, though, and I, I couldn't find a bunch of reasons why, but also it's the 60s, 70s. So I don't unfortunately think there is much of a reason why. But he he fucking hated gay people like, with a burning passion. And his half-brother, Natividad, was gay.
0: Oh my god, I wonder if that played into why. Like, he felt personally affronted by it because someone in his family was gay.
1: It also was this time in history, so it's unfortunately, I think, there were a lot of people that was just kind of the normal mindset. Like, the default to- mindset was to hate gay people.
0: Yeah, it's not uncommon.
1: I mean, he definitely took it, though, very far. So, Natividad, his brother, he's gay, and he owns the Guadalajara Cafe in Marysville. And in the morning on February 25th, 1970, a young man named Jose Romero Rea was very brutally attacked with a machete in the bathroom of the cafe. And about 1 a.m., customers discovered Jose. He had been, like, hacked in the head, the face, and Natividad called police, but Jose filed a lawsuit against Natividad saying that he was involved. He, He was a part of it. I don't think Jose saw who attacked him, and he blamed Natividad because Natividad had earlier, like, been hitting on Jose or whatever, and Jose was like, nah, dude, I'm good. And then he later got attacked.
0: Well, and there's also the possibility that because natividad owns the cafe jose is just like this clearly was your fault you were clearly involved i was attacked here and
1: also again probably a bunch of anti-gay shit going on in the court system because uh jose won he won a judgment of two hundred fifty thousand, which makes me think it was a civil suit not a criminal one yeah and that caused natividad to have to sell his business and he returned to mexico instead of paying at this time, nobody linked Juan with the attack and even seemed to be involved in any way other than this kind of involves his brother. But, uh, I'ma I'm go ahead and say they're, uh, they're probably wrong.
0: I'm gonna think they're wrong as well, but I understand him not being a suspect. If he didn't associate with his brother anymore, why would they mm-hmm. think that he did this?
1: In March of 1970, Juan Corona is again admitted back to the state hospital for treatment. And eventually he was again released. And about a year later, he applied for welfare, but his application was denied And that sent him into a rage. So flash forward a couple months to May. On May 19th of 71, a farmer is touring his orchard. And he noticed that there's this fresh hole that was dug that's roughly the size of a grave. Oh, God. that has been dug in between two of the fruit trees. But one of uh, Corona's crews was working nearby. And so he was like... Okay, maybe they're going to plant a tree there, so I don't know. But later that night, he returned and saw that the hole had been filled in.
0: Oh, oh, it was an empty hole when he first saw it. Yeah. Oh, I thought he just saw, like, a mound, like, something had been buried there. But this was literally a, a he saw a grave, and then later yeah, saw he the saw grave it filled an,
1: in. a grave. Uh-huh. And so that, he was like, mm I don't know about this. So he called the police, summoned them to his farm, and that next morning.
0: He summoned the police. He was just like, police, please come. And they appeared.
1: Yeah, he actually was a witch.
0: I didn't see that twist coming
1: you know there's a lot of twists in here from uh possibly gay cafe witchcraft um all the things oh my god i should open a restaurant called the possibly gay cafe
0: oh my or god the
1: impossibly gay cafe
0: okay either of those would be perfect and you need to like copyright that right now <laughs> that's mine don't okay, steal it i'm
1: uh, i'm opening the impossibly gay cafe it's going to be the gayest place you've ever seen.
0: Oh my gosh. I can't wait to go for brunch. <laughs>
1: okay. It, the line will be out the door.
0: It will be because it's in Austin and literally you'll be so busy.
1: We serve bottomless mimosas for bottoms.
0: and Once restaurants can open up again.
1: Oh yeah, I guess I couldn't open it right now. Well, that's okay. <laughs> Anywho. Yeah, the farmer's not a witch. He just called the police and they came there the next morning. They get to the little now-filled-in grave, and they're digging. And they had not dug much before they found the fresh body of a homeless man, Kenneth Whitaker. Kenneth had been stabbed, and his face and skull had been torn open
0: Oh, by, by what was
1: probably either a cleaver or, much more likely, a machete.
0: I'm gonna go with the machete.
1: Detectives, as they were like searching his body, they found a couple pieces of what was described as gay literature. So I'm like, did he tear some pages out of like an Oscar Wilde book? Was it like a torn copy of Playgirl? Like I I don't know what gay literature means, but they found that in his pocket and they were like, okay, this was probably a sex crime. One thing you have to remember about all of this is at the same time. The gay rights movement had just begun in San Francisco. The previous summer was the Stonewall Riots in New York, and so it was kind of beginning in earnest in San Francisco at this time, and straight people were not happy with it. They were seeing gay people out on the streets, being themselves, kind of coming out of the shadow. And there were a lot of straight people that would fight back with anger and fear and attack gay people.
0: That is so unnecessary.
1: But because that was going on at the time, and, you know, really the only clues they had around Kenneth's body were some tire tracks that led to the grave. They're like, well, I mean, yes, he was murdered and buried here, but there's nothing really to be alarmed about. It's just another, another gay kid who was killed.
0: That's not fair.
1: Read up on this, on the gay rights movement, if y'all aren't aware, because it's a lot. It is not just a Stonewall and Harvey Milk, although those are two very important pieces. But it's, it's a fucking lot. So police, they are seeing this as more essentially a one-off. You know, obviously this is part of a bigger thing going on, but this in particular, it's a one-off. It's not really something to focus on. Until four days later. That was when workers who were on a nearby ranch reported they found a second grave. And in that grave, there was another homeless man, Charles Fleming. But police were actually still working on identifying Charles when they found the next grave. And then the next one. And the next one. And they were finding all of these bodies. And as each body was pulled out of the graves, the people who were digging them up were making bets on how many they were going to find.
0: Oh my god.
1: And no one was close because they just kept finding more and more bodies. Like they'd come across someone's personal cemetery.
0: This is insane because clearly this is like a signature. They're connected. The killer is not even trying to hide the fact that he's doing all of this because they're identical.
1: Yeah. And as they're finding the bodies, it's very clear that all of these victims had been sexually assaulted. Their pants were found around their ankles or they were nude from the waist down. And so this was not like... People had been murdered for money or like robbed and stuff. Like, this is a mass murder, sex crime. And there, like, there were so many bodies they were digging up that sometimes with the shovel, they would accidentally cut into someone's body or cut off a body part. And they kept having to dig deeper and deeper because they kept finding people.
0: Oh my God, and it's in the same grave? Wait.
1: No, there's like dozens of graves. Oh. But there's like multiple people.
0: Oh in some my of them. god. This is horrifying. This is okay, I knew a little bit about your case before you started, but clearly I didn't know the details. I didn't know the my mind right now. I'm this is so mm. much. This is crazy.
1: Yeah. The it's horrifying. And some some of the articles were speaking about it in just such graphic ways that not necessarily graphic in a like sensationalist way, but graphic in a way that's like, "Oh my God, that's what they were seeing and in things that I just wouldn't think about, one of them described them as like some of the bodies had suffered decomp so bad that they were basically like falling apart when the people who were digging it tried to lift them out, yeah, so they would just have to pick up multiple pieces of the victims to put them in these body bags to get them to morticians in one of the graves though a uh, man named Melford sample, the deputies found two meat receipts so like receipts from a butcher I imagine oh, okay that have been dated May 21st and had been signed with the name Juan Corona
0: Wait why are Juan's receipts in this guy's pocket?
1: I have no idea maybe they went to the butcher together maybe meat receipts means something I don't know and is a thing in the gay community in the <laughs> 70s I don't know honestly but he had signed meat receipts
0: I think it's, it's probably it's, the butcher but I you I, know I, I honestly I think
1: so that's going to be on the menu of the impossibly gay cafe Meat receipts. It's a charcuterie board. Brittany's horrified at this. But, I mean, you should be horrified for multiple reasons of this. Well, I mean,
0: because it is horrifying. We've probably said horrifying like 50 times at this point because it's that bad.
1: Yeah. I did not know. I had vaguely heard of this case before. Although, I think mentally in my head, I mixed it with the uh, guy who was murdering children near Los Angeles in the 20s and burying them at the farm there. It's also a case that happened that's kind of famous. And I think I mixed up these two cases.
0: Right. Well, one thing that I I will pinpoint as quite interesting, you'll find out shortly what my case is, but it is also around the same time period in the 70s. And a lot of it is because a machete was something people actually had. You know how you mentioned at the beginning of the episode how it was something you've never really seen except for, like, for camping and stuff? People owned mm-hmm. machetes, just like people owned axes. And that's why there were so many axe murders. And looking back, like, those are such violent tools or tools that can be used for such violence that I feel like now in 2020, we're like, oh my god, freaking axes and machetes? But back then, that was in your, mm-hmm. your shed. It was like a normal tool. I mean, yeah. It was like having a hammer.
1: Yeah. I mean, I feel like it'd be really no more different than someone being murdered with a kitchen knife or, you know, like I said, a hammer now because it's a very common thing people had.
0: I cannot believe Juan Corona is getting away with all of these murders. And so this receipt, you know, I am glad they found it.
1: Yes. They found receipts on Melford's sample and then couple days later, on June 4th, they uncovered the body of Joseph Maxack, and on him, they found two more receipts. These were bank receipts that had the exact same signature of Juan Corona on them.
0: That's such a weird thing to leave with two victims.
1: I know. I am not sure if it's one that, like, you know, when the victims were getting killed, they grabbed it off of him or what, or if he purposefully put the receipts there. I don't know. But the meat receipts, I'm like, okay, maybe they went to the butcher together. Okay, that weirdly could make sense. I don't know. But the bank receipts, I'm like, even if you went to the bank with someone, they're not going like, to hold on to your bank receipts.
0: Right. That's weird. It is.
1: So I don't know how the receipts were there. All in all, these bodies are all being discovered in May and early June of 1971, and some of the bodies were pretty fresh. But others were very clearly had been in the ground for months, and medical examiners were estimating that the first murders probably occurred around February of 1971, which, if you remember, would have been just before Juan Corona got denied for welfare. Most of the victims, they had been stabbed or they'd been hacked to death. Several of them had been uh, sexually assaulted, and four of them were ultimately unidentified, but the rest of them were a mix of migrant workers or drifters or um, different homeless people, and some of them were Skid Row alcoholics. But the thing that kind of I think is one of the most horrifying. Just another piece of horror to it is none of the victims had been reported missing by their surviving relatives none of them
0: that's horrible and not okay and i hate it but they did live these these people seem to have lived very transient lifestyles and their family may have never known where they were in the first place so they didn't even know to report them missing
1: no and i think one corona was very clearly targeting people who were already victimized by society or circumstance so i think that was very much part of his plan If no one gets reported missing, how, you know, who's to say any of this happened?
0: Exactly. He is targeting the forgotten people.
1: Yeah. So these receipts that were found, they were circumstantial evidence, but they gave a boost to the case and they were enough for police to start targeting Juan Corona.
0: Or at least to try to go talk to him.
1: Yeah. Because they also had witnesses who later told police that... Some of the victims had been last seen riding in Juan's pickup truck. So with that, all that information on May 26th. So this is still during the time that they're discovering more and more bodies. They haven't found the bank receipts at this point. Okay. But on May 26th, police entered Juan Corona's home with a search warrant and they arrested him. And they discovered some pretty damning evidence. They found two bloodstained knives, a machete, a pistol. They found bloodstained clothing. And there was also a work ledger that contained 34 names and dates. And it included seven of the known victims.
0: So they already had all of this They had already arrested him and whatever you're about to tell me. But I'm also picturing, okay, but in the future they find those receipts where it's like, well, that's just the nail in his coffin.
1: Yeah, because they're not done looking for more victims. Yeah. They keep finding more. So even though they've got a lot of evidence now on him, they're still looking for more. But this list, this work ledger prosecution in the trial would later refer to it as his death list and they alleged that it recorded the dates that these men had been murdered i don't know necessarily because there's 34 names on it and it sounds like seven of the known victims were on it but i don't know about the other people there's dates with them so i i don't know if that was just like a part of it or what but i do know that a lot of his victims were people who'd worked for him. Because, again, Juan Corona had been supplying workers for these ranches where the victims' bodies were discovered. And he actually housed many of them in a bunkhouse on the Sullivan Ranch. And Sullivan Ranch was where most of the victims' bodies were found. So, Juan Corona, he was provided uh, legal aid, he got a public defender, and his... Public defender hired several psychiatrists who were there to perform different psychological evaluations on him. And although the sheriff of the town or county said that he was in no apparent or immediate danger from being attacked by other people in the town, Juan Corona was moved to a newer and larger and safer county jail in Marysville for security reasons because they're pretty sure the town was going to revolt and murder him. And while I pretty much never am okay with or agree with extrajudicial justice, you know, I might be sitting across the street at the impossibly gay cafe sipping my martini being like, oh no, look what's happening, everyone.
0: No, extrajudicial is never... Don't take matters into your own hands. That's not the way the system works. But I can see how infuriated the town would be with him. And he would be in danger. Oh,
1: absolutely. But one of my arguments for it, though, is like, one, he's not been to trial yet. You know, the, the public has not seen the evidence. True. So he very much could be an innocent man. He is innocent until proven guilty. But also, even if it's very obvious that he's guilty, he did this. By taking it into your own hands and stuff, you are ending any opportunity to learn about other victims the police hasn't found. Haven't found, you know. Give justice and closure for other families. So it's true. N- don't don't do it. Don't. I mean, I I guess that's a lesson I have to tell all our listeners: is don't go to jails and murder people.
0: Well, it's similar to that one case, we've never done it. I could totally be getting this wrong, but I think it was in Missouri where the town like comes together and kills this guy and it's we're gonna do it one of these days. Listeners right now are like, Oh my god, it's so and so. Come on, how do you not know that? Wait,
1: was it the one where it was the dude who's like a crazy asshole who threatened everyone with guns? Yeah. And then the town meeting was the town was having a meeting and shot him? And everyone's like, I don't know what happened. I did that case in, I want to say, a murder mini. I
0: think you did it in a murder mini.
1: Dozens ago.
0: It was a long time ago, but it's similar to that, where this town just like came together mm-hmm. and was like, all right, if no one points the finger, everyone's innocent. And they fucking killed the guy. Yeah. Anywho. Back yes. to Juan Corona.
1: S- yes, Juan Corona. Police moved him into a safer jail so that he wouldn't be just straight up murdered. And on June 2nd... Again, this is still two days before they found the bank receipts, because they found bank receipts on June 4th. June 2nd, he is taken to Sutter County for arraignment, and this was closed to the media and closed to the public. He entered a plea of not guilty, and they set a date for his preliminary trial. So, by the time that the search ended on June 4th, they had found a total of 25 male victims, Four of them were still unidentified, and it it was believed that there were many more bodies buried in the area.
0: Yeah. If someone's buried 25 people, they've probably buried 50 to 75 people. Yeah. With how quickly they're finding all of these victims, I imagine Mm -hmm. there are way more.
1: Oh, yeah. And it sounds like most of these were found on just the one ranch. So I'm like, there could be another ranch I haven't looked at that has another 20 people. So, Juan Corona's defense attorneys at trial, they tried to blame the murders on his half-brother, Natividad, because Natividad was, as they said, a well-known homosexual. And I'm like, okay. Okay. Guess when you're famous and gay, you murder people. Neil Patrick Harris, we should take him to jail.
0: Oh my god, don't. I love Um, him. He didn't do anything. Yeah.
1: Neil Patrick Harris is perfect. Leave he, him alone. His husband um,
0: and their children are like ideal. Can you not say like dream that's family? That's so true. Seriously. I, yes.
1: But yeah, they're blaming it on to TV dad because he was gay and he'd also, I guess, been known to have fits of violence. But I think that's being like attributed to this prior machete attack that happened in his restaurant, the Guadalajara cafe. Yeah. And, um, pretty sure that wasn't natividad pretty sure that was juan who did that the thing is though there was no evidence no documentation or anything that could show that natividad was even in california during this murder spree oh that's right because he went back to mexico he moved back to mexico yeah so jurors deliberated for 45 hours before they convicted juan corona on all counts and in January of 1973, he was sentenced to 25 consecutive life terms.
0: Wow.
1: But this wasn't over yet.
0: Oh my god, were they still finding bodies? Yeah. Oh no.
1: In December of 73, so not even a year after his sentencing, he was linked to the death of a 26th victim, but no charges were fa- were filed in that one. In May of 78, an appeals court actually ordered a new trial for Corona because his prior legal defense was incompetent. Which, I mean, if their big strategy was, his brother did it! Was his brother even in the country? You know, I don't know. Pretty, pretty shitty defense. So, he's ordered a retrial, but his retrial was delayed for a couple of reasons. One, he had different psychiatric evaluations and observations he had to undergo the other one in 1980 he was stabbed by another inmate and that lost him uh his sight in one eye by 1982 he had his new trial but he was convicted again and returned to prison with 25 life terms
0: like did they restart i mean they're
1: consecutive so i don't I don't know. But you'll Honestly. restart one and be like, "Well, you're now going to be here in here for 1200 years instead of 1188 on March 4th of 2019 at the age of 85 Juan Corona died. He had previously been diagnosed with dementia. He'd been denied parole 8 times and by the end of it he was in a special needs yard. Because of his dementia, but he died in prison. And at the time of the murders and at the time of the trial, his crimes were characterized as some of the most notorious in US history. And again, the exact victim total is not known now and probably will never be known, but is most likely much, much higher. Yes. But that is the case of Juan Corona, the machete murderer.
0: Wow, dude. That is. Insane.
1: And I also, uh, listeners just thought about I am recording this at my desk. In front of me is my window, which is open. And if any of my neighbors are on their patio, they just heard my entire case and are probably like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what? If y'all like this, you should listen to Blood and Wine A True Crime Podcast. <laughs> neighbors.
0: <laughs> I often wonder if people overhear me recording, but also I'm like, meh, I'm in my home. I do what I want. I do what I do. But, like, I had no idea the victim count was so high in your case.
1: I had no idea it was so high. I think, I know we've both mentioned Juan Corona, one-offs, when describing other serial killers. I think when you did Candyman Dean Coral, in your case you had, like, a line or something about... How yours became the most prolific serial killer because it eclipsed Juan Corona at the time.
0: Yeah, this was a case that it's been, you know, on our list and you brought it.
1: Boom. But yeah, so... That was my horrifying machete murder case. Uh, why don't you tell me about yours and just let's keep this horror train chug a lugging along.
0: Before I do that, I'm gonna chug-a-lug my wine, but also tell you more about it because it's no longer too cold. So I just wanted to add on that it it does taste like an Italian wine. Like, it's giving me more of these earthy tones. There's definitely the red cherry. It tastes a little bit of that licorice. It's still a very smooth wine. I'd call it medium embodied i recommend it it's good i've been sipping on it uh while you tell told me this horrible tale but so i just wanted to i feel like i didn't do justice at the beginning i was just kind of like i don't know it's too cold and that's it's hard to respond and like i said if you chill your wine too long just let it unchill meaning sit on the counter and, and you'll be good
1: just let it just breathe <laughs> be ananalic and let it just breathe
0: so the machete murder that i picked is probably one of the, maybe it's the second well-known, I don't know, with yours. It's the Florida Machete Murder, or the murder of Athalia Ponsell Lindsley. Okay. So the sources I used, an article from True Crime Database.
1: TCDB!
0: And (laughs) I watched one of the BuzzFeed Unsolved videos with Ryan and Jane.
1: My boys. Yeah.
0: So, on the evening of January 23rd, 1974, so like I said, not too long after yours. I guess
1: machetes, yeah, you just, it was a 70s thing. It's vintage. People
0: had them. 56-year-old socialite Athalia Ponce Lindsley was attacked and murdered by an unknown assailant on the front steps of her Florida home. Which can I just say, scariest fucking thing to be murdered at home?
1: Yeah, that is so your case already. It's kind of combining Juan Corona and our case we did last episode episode 100 with Johnny Versace, like, oh, front steps of your Florida home, but a machete.
0: Yeah, this attack was so brutal, and no one saw it, and this would become one of the most notorious unsolved crimes. Athalia was born into a very affluent and wealthy family in Toledo, Ohio. She worked for over 20 years as a model in New York. Later, she was a Broadway dancer, and she was a hostess on the television game show Winner Takes All. She was a very brash woman, though. She didn't really have a lot of friends. She was not necessarily a favorite person in town. Everyone knew who she was, but she wasn't very well-liked. At one point in her life, she was actually engaged to Joseph P. Kennedy Jr., but he died while he was on active duty in World War II. She moved to St. Augustine, Florida in 1972 with her mother. And at this point in her life, she worked in real estate. Then in September 1973, so she'd been there close to a year or so, she Mm -hmm. met someone named James Linsley. He was a very successful real estate agent and also the former mayor of St. Augustine. So very much up in her echelon. Because again, she's a very affluent, like, and she found him, they got married pretty quickly. But on the afternoon of January 23rd, 1974, Athalia got home around 5 o'clock. She had been out shopping and her husband James left at about 5.30. Between about 6 and 6.15, she went outside to walk her pet blue jay, Clementine. Apparently Uh, this bird needed to go on a walk.
1: (laughs) Walking her bird. How does that work? work. Does it fly in front of you and it's on a little leash? You know. Is it literally like hopping on the ground and she's like, "Please God, don't step on it."
0: Honestly, some of the biggest questions I have because uh why
1: can't you walk it in the house? I'm
0: like, "Do you have like a bird harness?" In 74? <laughs> what is this? Custom. That's what it is.
1: I wonder You know, it also totally could have been one of those things. He's in his cage and she's like walking him with the cage around outside to get him some fresh air, maybe?
0: To show him all the things he can't do, all the places he can't fly.
1: I can show you the world. All the things you'll never see. Basically. You're in a cage.
0: So she's- And
1: he's sitting there. Oh, no. Anywho.
0: (laughs) So she's walking her blue jay. On her porch, though, is when she encountered an unknown individual welding a machete. Wielding? (laughs) (laughs) I don't
1: think he was welding it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What if I was like no like he had a torch and he was he was making the machete sorry um thank you tyler for pointing out the fact that i said that word way wrong what did i say earlier i say nothing correctly um he was so this unknown person was wielding a machete i don't know why i kept wanting to say weld but okay wait
1: while she's walking her bird
0: no when she's coming out of the house to walk her bird
1: Okay, so she's with the bird. She's
0: with the bird. She's on her porch and someone's there with a machete.
1: Oh my God. I very much nothing like this at all. But coming out of your door, like out of your apartment or your house, and someone being right there is probably one of the most terrifying instant things ever. Yeah. It's right up there for when you're reaching out to like open a door. And someone on the other side, like, opens it because they're coming out. And then you're, like, three inches away from a sudden person. It's terrifying.
0: Athalia was attacked and he struck her nine times.
1: So he was just waiting for her to come out.
0: Yeah. Later, the autopsy would reveal that she had been hit mostly on her hand and arm. So this indicated that she was attempting to defend herself, um, and one of her fingers was even severed. But she was also hit in the head, and the attacker nearly decapitated her. Oh, So Athalia's neighbors were Rosemary McCormick and her 19-year-old son, Locke. When the attack was happening, Locke heard what he thought was arguing, and then he started hearing some screaming. And he looks out the window, and he turns to his mother, and he says, Mr. Stanford is hitting Mrs. Ponsel. More on this later. So Locke saw a man in a white shirt and dark pants that looked like this Mr. Stanford. But then he walks away and leaves. When he left, the McCormicks rushed over to the crime scene, and this is where they found Athalia lying in a pool of blood on her front porch. They quickly called 911, and they waited for emergency services to arrive. But when police got there, they found Athalia's body lifeless there on her front steps. She was pronounced dead at the scene, and the police immediately began their investigation.
1: I'm glad at least her neighbors were there. Like, she didn't die alone.
0: So there were mistakes in the investigation from the get-go. First off, there was a trail of blood that led to the back of the house, and one of the police officers actually asked the ambulance attendant to hose down the blood, clean it off. What?! Yeah. Literally, even in 74, I cannot imagine why you would tell someone to clean up blood at a crime scene, but that is what happened.
1: Because even back then, they did blood typing, didn't they? Yes. I know they didn't do blood DNA, but they could be like, oh, this is A positive. Well, hold on. Her blood's B neg, so this could be from the killer.
0: Yep. You're absolutely right. Wow. Hose it
1: down. Hose it down. That is that is some John Mulaney shit right there. Gross. Clean it up.
0: It literally is. It's, it is that joke come to life. Maybe this is what influenced that joke. So despite all of the things Athalia had in her house, including a ton of antiques, nothing was taken. But Blue Jay, who was her bird that she had found and, like, nursed back to health, he was gone. His cage was found empty and smashed.
1: I wonder if, like, the bird was taken or if the cage was, like, smashed in the attack and Blue Jay was like,
0: Bye! Oh,
1: I'm the fuck out of here.
0: I don't know. Initially, Athalia's husband, James Lindsley, was considered a suspect, which, of course, yeah. always, the spouse is always his first suspect. They'd only been married for four months prior to her murder, but they lived in different homes.
1: That's weird.
0: Athalia lived on Marine Street, and James actually alternated between two different homes, one on George Street and another on Lou Boulevard. Athalia was still in her home though because she was trying to sell it and she didn't want to leave it unoccupied. So, honestly, okay. It is
1: That's not weird.
0: It is weird but it's also not, but it also is because they're both real estate agents and it's like you can't even sell your own home. What's going on?
1: No, that's a that's a good point. I forgot that they were both real estate agents. Yeah.
0: James said, though, that even though they were in separate homes, they were not having any marital issues. But there were some letters that Athalia sent to her sister that say otherwise. James also did have a machete, like the one that was used to kill Athalia. Which he kept in his trunk and he would use it when he was going to show homes and he had to like hack the undergrowth at the properties to make it look a little bit better.
1: Okay, if I am ever like being shown an open house and a f- fucking Indiana Jones is showing me the way hacking away <laughs> leaves and vines and shit to get to the house, I'm probably not interested.
0: <laughs> they need to have a landscaper come out and then maybe I'll look at the house, but I can't even see the shutters. Uh,
1: yeah what's the curb appeal it's a forest
0: <laughs> well i couldn't tell you i can't even see the house james turned in his machete immediately to the police and like i said earlier it was pretty normal at this time for people to have a machete or two and especially here in florida they honestly had to cut the growth quite a bit and they would use their machete
1: oh uh, i mean yeah but honestly okay he turns it into the police First off, he's the former mayor, so probably has a pretty good relationship with those same police that were like, hose down the blood. So I'm sure if he like lazily wiped his machete with a paper towel, they'd be like, nope, it's clean, it's not red, so here you go.
0: And that's definitely something to keep in mind. James also had about a 20 minute gap in his alibi where no one could account for where he was. But the investigation against James was quickly dropped after it was established that he was nowhere near the vicinity at the time of the crime, so he couldn't have done it.
1: But I thought there was 20 minutes that no one knew where he was.
0: But I thought he was former mayor and knew all the police.
1: Oh, okay. Yep, that's, (laughs) I I thought that's kind of where we were, where we were at, but I'm like, we don't know where you were, but it definitely wasn't here, Mr. Mayor.
0: So let's go back to the potential person that Locke said he saw attacking Athalia. So Alan Stanford Jr. lived next door to Athalia Lindsley on Marine Street. He was 48 years old and a county manager, and he had allegedly been having this ongoing dispute with Athalia over like so many different issues. But most notably, it was the six stray dogs that she had, which were constantly barking. This later developed into a feud between the two of them, with Athalia going as far as to complain about Stanford at a county meeting in October 1973. So this is a few months before the murder. Athalia made a complaint on record concerning the issue of Stanford's raise in salary by $20,000. And one of the county commissioners replied, i am aware you are a neighbor of the stanfords and that y'all have had neighborly problems to which she replied that's true but my life has been threatened you mention personal things he threatened my life so this feud it went on for quite a while and it was about dogs it was about his salary it was just they were those neighbors that bickered about everything whether it was personal or political they were at odds
1: She's trying to move. Wouldn't you, the neighbor, want to be like, you know what? I want to make sure she gets out of here by like, we're going to make sure someone buys this house.
0: <laughs> On several occasions, she actually attempted to have him fired. Um, and he had taken her to court over the noises caused by the dogs in the neighborhood. He wasn't the only one that complained about the dogs. There were other people too.
1: I mean, six dogs. I would be livid. Not murder someone livid, but I would be livid if I had a neighbor who had six screaming dogs.
0: <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty annoying. And Athalia had numerous enemies because of her very volatile personality like i mentioned earlier she also had very staunch conservative views while stanford he was liked by most people who knew him athalia believed that stanford was incompetent and one county meeting records that stanford asked athalia why why she was attempting to get him fired and she said your wife was meddling in my business with the dogs last fall so, again, like, it's just, like, these neighborly feuds back and forth, like, trying to destroy each other's lives. Ugh, it's it's like it's Desperate st- Housewives.
1: Yeah. I'm like, is your life in the suburbs that boring that you have to take loud dogs and blow it up to this?
0: Well, and one of the police sergeants even went to her home and told her, like, hey, you need to keep your dogs quiet. It's bothering people in the neighborhood. But nothing ever happened. That was it. That's as far as it ever went. Really? But police believed that Alan Stanford had done this. They believed that he killed her.
1: I mean, if she's right and he th- had threatened her life, somebody threatens your life and then you get murdered is a pretty probable suspect.
0: It is. But again, there were a lot of people that also believed that this investigation had been botched from the very start. Philip Whitley, who had taken the crime scene photos, later recalled that the police did not secure the property. He said people were walking through the yard, climbing over hedges. It was a very bizarre deal. They were destroying the crime scene. So the police weren't protecting it all. People were all over it. They were hosing it down, like preserving nothing.
1: Oh my God. People go away. It is not a sideshow. It's a woman's murder scene.
0: There was also another bloody trail that was found to lead away from the body, right up to the wall of Alan Stanford's property next door. Later, blood droplets were also found in his county vehicle, and when police told Alan Stanford about Athalia's death, he asked, was she shot or was she cut? So he's not setting himself up to look very innocent.
1: No. And if the bloody trail goes right to his wall i mean i guess yeah there's the idea that someone could be like "Ooh, i want it to look like this and like go up to his wall but then if they didn't just go into his house there'd be a bloody trail that went away from the wall you know
0: yeah stanford though he protested that he was innocent and he said that there were five county employees that could identify him as being in his office at the time of the murder But there was no murder weapon that had been found, and without any concrete evidence of his guilt, the police had to just move on and continue their investigation. They put out a $500 reward for anyone who had information, and county worker Dewey Lee decided, you know what? I'm going to go find that murder weapon.
1: Okay, Dewey.
0: And on February 15th, 1974... He decided to go search the marsh at low tide on the south end of Riberia Street, and that is where he eventually found a bloody white dress shirt, a pair of trousers, a belt, uh, shoes, a machete, a watch, and oddly, a baby diaper. See, now I'm
1: suspect of Dewey, because I'm like, okay... You're like, I'll find it. Look, I found everything. (laughs) Oh, did you now? Oh, do we? You just
0: found it? You just just happened to stumble upon that right there, do we? I
1: don't know about that. Also, is he saying some murderer just like stripped down to naked time and had been wearing a diaper (laughs) in the marsh?
0: I don't know, but the blood on the clothing and the machete, it was too degraded to match the blood type to Athalia's. It had been sitting in salt water and mud for a while, for about, what, like a month or so almost, but the watch was found to belong to Alan Stanford. Stanford claimed after the murder that he discovered his watch was missing, but he was indicted for the murder. They found that watch, they found that it was his, and they had already had their suspicions. They were like, nope, Alan did it.
1: Honestly? Oh, I don't know. Because it seems both so obvious that, yeah, it's him, but also at the exact same time, so obvious that his, he's just being framed. Exactly. I'm just like, ugh, which I guess means it's a good framing.
0: So on February 22nd, Sheriff Dudley Garrett and Sergeant Dominic Nicklow arrested Stanford at his home for the murder of Athalia Ponce Lindley. He spent four days in jail, but the city was very much like, no, he didn't do this. So they raised $25,000 to pay his bond and he was released and he waited an entire year before his trial started. The town also saved up $250,000 for his legal defense.
1: Why? He was
0: their former mayor. He's the
1: county... What? They
0: didn't think he did it. No,
1: he's the county commissioner, right? Oh. Former mayor's the husband. Yes, you're
0: right. Sorry, they're all in politics here.
1: I know, like small town (laughs) politics. But if he's former county commissioner and apparently just gave himself a $20,000 pay raise, why the fuck does he need their money for?
0: I mean, that's a very good question, but they believed he was innocent and raised the money.
1: Uh, Put that money towards the Girl Scouts or something. Buy yourself cookies. He can pay for his own defense team.
0: <laughs> buy yourself $20,000 like $20, of Thin Mints. What are you doing? <laughs> for real?
1: No, $250,000 worth of Thin Mints. True dat. And Samoas. Don't forget those Samoas. You know what? Actually, buy more Samoas than thin-, thin Mints.
0: Buy just a lot of Girl Scout cookies.
1: No one needs Tagalongs, though. If you like Tagalongs, get out.
0: I like those. Those are the shortbread ones.
1: No. Tag alongs with the peanut butter chocolate ones.
0: I like those.
1: Yeah. I think peanut butter and chocolate is one of the grossest food combinations in the world.
0: You have shared I think that your is just vile. like you've shared your really bizarre tastes in food, and I disagree. <laughs> I don't
1: I don't think it's that bizarre.
0: I really think it is. But Back to my case.
1: Yes, not talking about Girl Scout cookies.
0: So, Frances Bemis, she was a friend and another neighbor of Athalia. And both of them had been socialites with a history in the entertainment business. She was a former newspaper writer, radio producer, and a fashion director. And she was one of Athalia's few friends and supporters. Because, like I said, most people didn't like her. Frances lived just four doors down from Athalia And like the Athalia in Stanford residences, because they were neighbors. So there was no one else but Alan Stanford being charged with the murder. She thought there was a lot of controversy that was going on. And so she started investigating on her own, gathering evidence. And it was believed that she was planning to write a book. Mm -hmm. She was overheard alluding to the fact that she had information that was pertinent to the case and that she knew who the murderer was. She had expressed her dislike for Stanford on several occasions, and she would have no doubt been a witness for the prosecution at his upcoming trial.
1: Would have? Like, she was going to and then something
0: happened? So even with her friend being murdered, Francis stated that St. Augustine was a very safe place and that she was still going out on her nightly walks, even after the murder happened. And she even said that she was out the night of the murder. She's like, but I still go on my walks. This is a safe city.
1: Mm, doesn't sound like it.
0: I mean, yeah, that's foreshadowing if I've ever seen it.
1: Yep. So on
0: Sunday, November 3rd, 1974, so this is about nine months after Athalia was murdered, Frances went out for her usual evening walk, but this time she did not return. The next day, a man walking his dog around 7 p.m. found her body in a vacant lot that was about a block and a half away from her home. Her skull had been crushed with a cement block, and she was semi-nude with most of her clothes being ripped off. But there was no sign of sexual assault. Her body had also been burned, as if someone was trying to get rid of the corpse and it didn't work and so they just left her there. Oh. Police Chief Virgil Stewart did not believe that there was any connection with Francis's murder and Athalia's murder. There were no leads in this investigation and her murder remains unsolved. So on January 23rd, 1975, a full year after Athalia had been murdered, Alan Stanford finally went to trial for her murder at the St. John's County Courthouse. He was defended by private attorney Edward Booth, who was himself a former county commissioner. So like literally, you can see how this is riddled with possibilities of political motivations of getting this dude off.
1: Yeah, well, and I'm also just thinking, okay... So the whole town basically came together to pay his legal fees and his bail. Who's going to be on the jury? People of the town, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the prosecution sought to implicate Stamford based on the circumstantial blood evidence located in his car, as well as the items of clothing found by Dewey Lee in the marsh, which included his watch. Stanford would claim that he had lost his watch and that the clothing was not his. But prosecutors noted that Stanford bought a new pair of shoes on the day they buried Mrs. Ponsel. Uh, so, Athalia. Because remember, there were shoes that were found, like he lost his good shoes. Mm-hmm. The most damning evidence against Stanford was the alleged witness, Locke McCormick. However, when investigators interviewed him, Locke's testimony about seeing Stanford attacking Athalia was not recorded by the police as a part of his statement, of course. And when he took the witness stand, Locke was unable to positively identify Stanford as the attacker. Instead, he said that he saw a man in his 40s to 60s wearing a white dress shirt and dark pants walk away from the scene. But he said he couldn't say for certain that it was Stanford, even though on the day of the crime, he did.
1: It's also been a year since he saw it.
0: It's been a while. The defense, though, was stating that Sheriff Dudley Garrett, Dewey Lee, and James Linsley, so her husband, they were framing Stanford all together. They stated that Dewey was able to find the items in the marsh so quickly because he was the one that put them there. So you had the same thought as the as yeah. the defense. A witness also stated that she saw Dewey in Athalia's yard two hours before the murder happened. So after two hours of deliberation on February 3rd, 1975, the jury returned a verdict of not guilty and Stanford was acquitted. Surprise, right? A month later in March, 1975, Stanford was fired from his job as county commissioner and then he moved out of the state. So today, like I said, this murder is unsolved. In 1998, Bloody Sunset in St. Augustine was published. And this was written by Jim Mast of Federal Point. And Nancy Powell, they mixed fact with fiction in this book. So it was one of those that's, like, based on a true story, but a lot of it's not true. Uh. So they said, like, it's based on a true event, but this isn't history. But the town completely ate it up. And it was a sensation in St. Augustine. Residents were very eager to read about all these lurid details of this unsolved crime because to them it was something that had happened, you know, in the 70s. Now it's, like, late 90s. And they're like, oh, my God, maybe there's going to be, like, some things we don't know. But in reality, like, that is true in the fact that that it is fiction. So it's like, yeah, there's going to be things you don't know in there because it's not real.
1: Oh, but they were viewing it as like, ooh, okay,
0: so now we're going to finally be able to find out. Exactly. All the tea. Exactly. Or just like a new theory, because there were a lot of them. And in 2000, A&E aired an hour-long documentary that detailed the case for the City Confidential Series. And then in 2006... Another 2,000 copies of Blood and Sunset in St. Augustine was reissued by Powell with uh, mass permission. So like, they were like, let's print more books, more people want to read it. And she said that her son later convinced her that it would always be a good seller. And she heard that copies were being sold on the internet for 50 to $75. And she thought that was ridiculous. So she's like, let's just print more. Nancy Powell was actually a friend of Athalia's and she remembers that she had lunch with her the day of the murder. She stated that Athalia and her husband James went to Jacksonville to shop that day. So I I guess like she felt the need to, like, help be a part of this book because she actually knew her and, like, saw her that day. And I haven't read the book. Sounds like I won't be able to get my hands on a copy. But the deaths of Athalia Poncel Lindsley and her friend Francis Bemis, they remain, like I said, unsolved. Wow. With cases that are just riddled with controversy. And for poor Frances, it seems like literally nothing was done. It almost feels like they went to the scene. They were like, well, there's no evidence. And never tried looking for anything. I know. And she was stripped and attacked and
1: burned.
0: So unsolved mysteries are ones that I hate them. But that's also why I've started being like, by the way, this one's unsolved. (laughs) Because it's just...
1: Just setting the stage.
0: So that's the murder of Athalia Lindsley.
1: Two very different cases of machete murders.
0: Two very different, two very... Intense cases of machete murders. Which it's a machete murder, of course, it's going to be intense. True. I'm going to just state that fact. But
1: uh, yeah, I don't. I feel like there are very few big weapons like that where you you could find one that's not intense.
0: So, are you ready to hop into postmortem?
1: Let's do it. Postmortem time.
0: Well, like I said, both two very intense cases. Mine being unsolved, like really just that sucks. Yeah. But the body count in yours. And the intensity of thinking about that team finding bodies and finding more and finding more and finding more and finding more. And eventually they just had to stop. But we know there's more. Like, dude, that is intense. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that Juan Corona was he had the, the electroshock therapy that only God knows what did to his to his mental state which i am positive was an influencer of his later uh, attacks that he did in the murders yours just had so many twists and turns and it's really intense and while mine is like very crazy and clearly riddled with political influence and uh shady police work i think when we compare the two yours is the more intense
1: yeah. I feel like in your case it was so much like are you kidding me with how the investigation was handled all the political aspects that were pulled into this murder case and shouldn't have been. But in mine the big what the fuck is the the finding the bodies and the more and more. Yeah. So yeah, I'll I'll agree with you. My case was more more intense and also just that The All the bodies they found through all that digging, and there's probably so many more.
0: That's what breaks my heart, is that we know there are more.
1: But the fact that in your case, it kind of seems like nobody actually gave a fuck with finding out the truth, finding out what actually happened. Yeah. It was just about... Protecting their person.
0: It absolutely was. And Mm -hmm. you really hit the nail on the head when you were saying that the jury was comprised of people that had helped raise money Mm -hmm. for his defense. It's like, obviously, this is biased and jaded, and you're not going to actually listen to the evidence. You're going to just be like, all right, well, we all decided, like, he's innocent, right? And they're like, yeah, but we should probably sit in this room for 48 hours to make it seem like we're actually talking about it.
1: I'm like, why was that case? That case to me is a perfect example of one that should have been done in another county or district.
0: 100%. Like I said, both really intense. Yours just took the cake.
1: I will agree with you on that. One. I will
0: pick the topic for next week. And like I said, up, leveling up that intensity. So gonna happen in a season two of Blood and Wine. Just kidding.
1: <laughs> not season two. <laughs> we don't do seasons.
0: No, we don't do seasons. We're just always here. So summertime is not a downtime.
1: You know, the what are the shows that do every day that are soap operas? Like days of our lives and stuff apparently they do seasons but they also do episodes like every day
0: didn't know it i guess it's good always you only have to wait one day I know (laughs) a day or like
1: a week or uh, yeah true you're like oh what a good season finale I wonder what the premiere is gonna be like tomorrow (laughs) it's kind of like you're constantly binge watching
0: and that's why that show's been around forever do you remember watching that as a kid like not on purpose but it would be on tv you never remember I
1: literally don't think I've ever seen an episode in my entire life
0: I watched a few. I was too young to understand what the hell was going on, but I remember being a kid and that show's still on.
1: I think it's been on since like the 60s. Oh
0: my god, it's such an old show.
1: Well, I hope y'all enjoyed that episode. I hope you found it interesting, learned some new things. And if you did, if you enjoyed it, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts rate and review us. Let us know what you love. Click those five stars. That really helps other people be able to find our podcast and us be able to really expand to new listeners who've never heard us. Uh, So yeah.
0: And while you're at it, be sure to like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Tyler won't let me start a TikTok for the podcast. Just kidding. No,
1: we are not starting a TikTok.
0: <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but be sure to check us out on social. It's where you can go and find all of the wines that we're having, see our beautiful faces, see reminders of what episodes are coming out. So definitely check it out.
1: And with that, this is Blood & Wine signing off.
0: XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.